selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Previously on Truth and Justice. On November 22nd, Royster received a phone call from a Miss Judy Gonzalez, affectionately known by her family as Aunt Mama Judy. Gonzalez stated that on the day of the murder, she saw three black males and one white male dragging Kiao from a white and gray Camaro Z28. Both Judy and Jesse swore out affidavits for Royster. We don't have a copy of Judy's affidavit. Sadly, she passed away before the trial, so her affidavit was never admitted. Royster spent the better part of two years attempting to expand on the information that these two gave him. We also find out that Jesse James Swindell's mother did in fact confirm to Royster that Jesse had told her about the incident on the day it occurred. She told Royster that she had advised Judy to call the police and she has no idea why she waited so long to do so. In one of Royster's notes dated December 4th, 1991, he says, quote, It is believed by this detective that Miss Gonzalez did witness this offense. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed, but the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Welcome back to Truth and Justice. We are now two months into the Kiao Gove and Jesse Eldridge case. At the very least, I think that we can all agree that there is zero evidence indicating that Jesse committed this murder. And for those of you who listened to this week's Friday follow-up, you heard that the overwhelming majority of our audience is convinced of Jesse's innocence with a small portion who are still on the fence and holding to not guilty, but not necessarily innocent. As I've said many times, it's extremely difficult to prove that something didn't happen. Once you've been accused of a crime, suddenly you become burdened with the task of proving why it couldn't have been you. 
This is exactly why the burden of proof in a criminal court case is supposed to fall on the prosecutor. We are all supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. It is the prosecutor's job to prove your guilt. It is not your burden to prove that you are innocent. But we all know that that is a standard that looks good on paper, but in reality, in the eyes of most people, being arrested means that you're already guilty. In Jesse's case, proving his innocence becomes an even more difficult task when he was asked to recount his movements on a morning three years gone by. Luckily, in his case, we have some circumstances that help to solidify Jesse's alibi. Jesse and Tammy only lived together in Troy's apartment for a short time, three months to be exact. During that time, Tammy got pregnant. This narrows the window of time for Tammy to remember that morning. Furthermore, she had just found out she was pregnant shortly before the murder. Tammy was only about six weeks in on the night that they all attended the party at the apartment complex. So that leaves us with Tammy remembering the one night that they attended a planned party at the complex within weeks of her finding out that she was pregnant. The party itself is also a big help. It wasn't a normal night. It was a planned event. The type of event that you remember by the date. I still to this day remember that on October 15, 2005, I hosted a housewarming party at my newly purchased home. The date sticks out because I planned it for weeks. Furthermore, we have the fact that the next morning, Jesse read about the murder in the paper. The murder occurred just a block away the morning before. This would no doubt generate some discussion about what was going on that morning. The bottom line is that Tammy has anchors that have helped to remember that particular morning. And so did Shauna when she said Jesse left without Troy that day. Unfortunately, Judge Warder never got the opportunity to hear either of their testimonies. And that leaves us where we stand today. Jesse is locked away in prison for a crime that he didn't commit. And we're tasked with finding the evidence that will set him free. At this point, I don't know that we are going to find any more information pointing towards Jesse's innocence. Like I said before, it's nearly impossible to prove that something didn't happen. So what we're going to do now is to take our best shot at proving what did happen. If Jesse Eldridge didn't kill Kiao, then who did? In today's episode, we're going to begin our investigation into what I believe at this point is our strongest lead, the White Camaro. The investigation into the White Camaro began with Jesse James Wendell and Judy Gonzalez's affidavits. As a quick refresher, supposedly on the morning of July 25, 1991, Jesse and Judy were driving around Spruce High School looking for Jesse's cousin, Ronnie Blackwell. While driving around the block, Judy and Jesse allegedly witnessed a group of men dragging a woman into a car. According to Royster's notes, Judy's sister, and that's Jesse's mother, confirmed to him that Judy and Jesse had told her about what they witnessed the day it happened. However, they did not come forward to the police until November of 91, four months after the murder. To refresh your memories, Jesse James Swindell's affidavit reads as follows. I am giving this statement to Detective K.W. Royster, who has identified himself to me as a Dallas police officer and who is writing this statement for me. 
I was with my aunt Mama Judy, who was driving a pickup truck. We were looking for Ronnie, my cousin. As we were coming from September Street to Grady, we saw four people dragging a woman to a white Z28 Camaro. The car had Z28 on the side. There were three black guys and one white guy. I saw them carry her and put her into the car. Then they all got in with one of the black guys driving. As they took off, they hit one of the tires in the street. I don't know if they stayed on September Street or not after turning off Grady. I was over to Mama Judy's house a couple of days later, and she told me that they killed that lady on the day we saw this happen. I did tell my mom what happened before, the same day this happened. I don't know what time this happened, but it was almost day. So to get started, let's first break down Jesse's affidavit to see if number one, it could be valid, and number two, what information can we get from it? First, let's look at validity. Are there any details in Jesse's affidavit that can be verified? Jesse says that he saw the assault take place in the early morning hours of July 25th. Kiao was, in fact, attacked at that exact time. Jesse says that the attack took place on Grady Lane near September Street. This is the exact location that I have identified as the only logical place for a premeditated attack to have taken place. If we look at the entire walking path around Spruce High, there is only one 50-yard stretch of road that is secluded from sight. That stretch is Grady Lane between Apache and September. The exact location where Jesse James claims to have seen the attack take place. Another important point in Jesse's affidavit is this. Jesse says, quote, As they took off, they hit one of the tires in the street. This confused me at first. The affidavit is handwritten and a little difficult to read. I thought that maybe I was reading it wrong. Hit one of the tires didn't make sense to me. That is until I received my open records request from the Dallas DA's office. In that request, I was sent a few crime scene photos. I sort of discarded the photos at first. As a private citizen, I'm not entitled to receive any photos that depict the victim, or basically any photos that show any blood. So included in my request were four photos of the scene, just shots of the surrounding area and the street. Again, at first, these pictures seemed to have no value. That is until I went back and reread the affidavit. Suddenly, those photos became much more relevant. In the crime scene photos provided to me, I saw what Jesse James Wendell was talking about. One of the pictures was taken from the middle of September Street, directly in front of where Kiao's body was found, and facing north, towards Grady Lane. And scattered along September Road were four tires. Three of the tires are off to the side of the road, but one is right in the middle of the street right at the intersection of September and Grady, directly in the path of travel of a car speeding away, driven by a panicked driver. Let's not forget that when Jesse swore out his affidavit, four months had passed by. How likely is it that that tire was still sitting in the middle of the street four months later, after school was in session and the grounds were patrolled daily by the school maintenance team? My thoughts? Not likely at all. All things considered, I think that there are definite indications of truth in Swindell's affidavit. If he was making this story up, 
At 12 years old, he was certainly able to include details that would be nearly impossible to make up. Unless he was actually there. Let's assume for a minute that Jesse James' story is true, and he did in fact see Kiao getting abducted. If that's the case, then we have a clear lead on a suspect. Find out who was driving that Camaro, and you found your killer. But how many white Camaros could have been driving around that neighborhood in 1991? As it turns out, less than we thought. See, Jesse gives critical details in his affidavit that go a long way to narrow down the car that we're looking for. He said that the car had Z28 on the side. To narrow the field, we first need a short lesson on Chevy's Z28 Camaro. And I want to thank our web guy, Chris Brinkley, for helping with this research. Coincidentally, Chris is not only a web wizard, but he's also a muscle car enthusiast. So Chevy first introduced the Z28 series of the Camaro in 1967. Only 602 Z28s were made in 67. Chevy continued to produce this extra muscly version of their muscle car until 1974. With only 13,000 Z28 sold in 74, Chevy opted to discontinue the package. From 67 to 74, the only indicating decal on these Camaros was a small Z28 emblem on the grille. Nothing on the side. Given this information, we can safely assume that Jesse James did not see a 1967-1974 Z28 Camaro. The Z28 disappeared until 1977 when Chevy reintroduced the package. On the 77 model, the Z28 emblem did move to the side of the car, but it was tiny and hardly visible unless you were right up next to the car. The emblems were placed just behind the front wheel on the bottom of the trim. In 1978, the Z28 got a facelift. In the 78, 79, 80, and 81 models, Chevy offered a large Z28 decal that was about 6 inches tall and about 3 foot wide on the side of the doors. This is what Jesse James Swindell saw that morning. A big Z28 decal on the side of the door. In 1982, Chevy introduced the third generation of the Z28. From 82 on, the only large decal that Chevy put on the side of the Z28 did not read Z28. Instead, it said IROC Z. So based on all of this information, we are no longer looking for a white Z28 Camaro. We are now looking for a white Z28 Camaro that is model year 78, 79, 80 or 81. Instead of filtering through 21 model years of vehicles, Jesse has sliced the suspect pool to four model years. And more importantly than the vehicle, we're looking for the driver of a 10 to 13 year old muscle car. At 10 to 13 years old, the car isn't old enough to be vintage or antique. At that point, it's nothing more than an older used car. We can't make any assumptions here, and I'm certainly not suggesting that we do. But what I will say is that the unsub described by Jim Clementi's profile, a young, late teens, early 20s male, would most definitely fit the profile of someone driving a 13-year-old muscle car, and possibly squeezing more people inside than what would be considered comfortable. Selling a little, or a lot... 
Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now let's get back into the validity of Jesse James Swindell's statement. Jesse was called to testify at trial. By the time the trial rolled around in 1996, Jesse was just a few weeks away from his 17th birthday. Still just a child, Jesse made his way to the witness stand. Remember that Jesse's aunt, Mama Judy, lost her battle with cancer and passed away in December of 1994. Since Judy passed, 16-year-old Jesse was the only witness available to recount what they saw in court. Jesse's testimony began with him recounting his affidavit. He says that he and his aunt were out looking for his cousin, Ronnie Blackwell, on the morning of July 25, 1991, when, quote, I saw four dudes carrying this lady off. They put her in a car. That's all. He says that the assault took place behind Spruce High School in the early morning hours. He still describes the car as a white Z28 Camaro and describes the assailants as three black guys and one white guy. At one point, Miller points to Jesse Eldridge and asks Wendell if he was one of the men that he saw that morning. Jesse replies, quote, I don't think so. Keep in mind that if anyone is to imply that Jesse is telling this story in order to collect reward money, he just blew it. The only way to collect any reward money would be to give information leading to someone's conviction. In this case, Wendell is in court testifying at Jesse Eldridge's trial. If he was motivated by reward money, then we would expect him to point the finger at Jesse, give information to help secure the conviction. Once Blackman takes over on Cross, he works on discrediting Jesse. He begins by asking him how he came to be in contact with the police. He asks Jesse if the police called Judy or if Judy called them. Jesse says that he doesn't know who called who. 
which is understandable considering that at the time he was still an elementary school student. Blackman then begins making suggestions that he and Judy were getting involved because of the reward money. Jesse replies by saying that he doesn't know anything about any reward money, and then Blackman shifts to Jesse's cousin, Ronnie, from the transcript. Question. Now you mentioned that you and your aunt saw these people grab this lady while you were out looking for your cousin, Ronnie Blackwell. Answer. Yes, sir. And you knew that around that time, police were considering Ronnie Blackwell as a suspect in this murder at Spruce. Answer. Oh yeah, I don't know. Question. What was that? Answer. I don't know. I didn't know that. Question. So at the time, you didn't know about the reward money? Answer. No, I didn't know about none of that. Question. You didn't know about your cousin Ronnie being a potential suspect? Answer. No. Next, Blackman asked Jesse about the time that he witnessed the attack. For some background here, Detective Watts wrote in his notes that Ronnie Blackwell told him, two and a half years after the murder, that he remembered Jesse and Judy picking him up that night around midnight. From the transcript, question, if your cousin Ronnie were to say that y'all met up with him around midnight to one o'clock, it would have been sometime around midnight or one o'clock when y'all found him. Answer, I don't know. I think it was the next morning, man. I don't know. Both Jesse and Mama Judy stated in their affidavits that they witnessed the attack in the early morning hours. In Jesse's affidavit, he stated that it was, quote, almost day. At trial, when asked, he says that he remembered it being, quote, in between light and dark out. Also, the reason that Judy and Jesse thought what they had witnessed was significant was because the next day, Judy found out from the news that a woman was killed in that neighborhood around the same time when they witnessed the attack. I think that it's extremely unlikely that the next day, Judy would confuse 7.30 a.m. with midnight the night before. However, when we get into Watt's notes, you'll see that Ronnie Blackwell's recollection, two and a half years later, seemed more credible to him. After this, Blackwell moves on to asking Jesse about some details. Was she screaming? Jesse says that he doesn't know. This is where we get into the meat of Jesse's testimony. From the transcript. Question. When these people grabbed the lady, was she screaming? Answer. No, I don't think so, man. I thought they was... I thought she was drunk or something, man. My aunt told me about it, that she had been killed. So you never got a chance to really see the lady, what she looked like? Answer. Not really. And this is at Spruce High School on September where these people grab her and pull her into the Camaro. Answer. Yes, sir. Question. Where were you all at when you saw this happening? Answer. We parked. We stopped. Driving by and I saw it. She said, look, and I looked back. You were right on September? Answer. Right there beside them. Question. Right there beside them? Answer. Well, we was probably from here to the other side of the wall. I looked back and they was carrying her. Question. She wasn't kicking? Answer. She might have been kicking, but I don't know if she was hollering. Question. To you, it looked like she didn't want to go? Answer. No, I don't think so. Shit. Question. Did you see them drive off? Answer. Yeah, I saw them drive off. They hit a tire and turned the corner. My aunt went on to my cousin's girlfriend's house. Question. Where did they turn? Answer. I don't know the name of the street. And they go on for a little while looking at diagrams to determine where the street was, and it was, in fact, on Grady Lane near September. Now back to the transcript. This is Jesse. Yeah, it was like parked right there. It took off, turned this corner right here. 
Do you know the name of the street? Answer. That's September Street, isn't it? See this park right here by the bus there? The next street right there. Question. Okay, they turn up this other street? Answer. That's all I saw. We went to this house right there, whatever they call it. Question. Went back over to this house? Answer. Yeah. Question. Did you call 911? No, we didn't call nobody. Didn't call nobody? Jesse's answer. We didn't know it was like that. Question. Didn't talk to anybody until about November, the end of November of that year? Answer. Yes, sir, I reckon. I don't know. I don't remember. I mean, it's been a long time ago. Question. When they grabbed her, where was she? Was she on the grass, sidewalk? Answer. Sidewalk. It was a sidewalk there, I think. Question. And they just what? Pulled up alongside of her? No, they was already parked. Had her when we saw her. Question. Already had her? Answer. It was like a car. There was a car right there. There's a car and another car right here. They was behind that car and they was walking out with her. Question. And you see them stuff this lady into the Camaro? Answer. Yeah, they pulled her through the Camaro and took off. Question. Everybody else got in? Those four guys got into that Camaro? Answer. Yeah. Question. Five people got into the Camaro and pull off? Answer. Yes, sir. Blackman. Nothing further. I wanted to read you exactly what Jesse said because the way he tells the story tells us a lot about his credibility. Jesse is a 16-year-old kid here, in a courtroom at a murder trial. I think that it's safe to assume that he was nervous and uncomfortable. Remember a few weeks back when we talked about memory? It's very difficult to remember a lie, to retell a story about something that you did not actually witness. There are some key indicators in Jesse's testimony that indicate, to me at least, that he's telling the truth. He is recounting an event that he actually witnessed. To begin with, he doesn't make up details that he can't remember. He doesn't fill in the gaps in his story. A great example of this behavior is my conversation with Troy Eldridge. Troy doesn't remember why Kia was out in the path that morning, so he fills in the gaps. She was in a housecoat and walking her dog. In Jesse Swindell's case, we don't see any of this. Was she screaming? I don't know. What time was it? I'm not sure. Sometime early in the morning. What we see here is Jesse relying on sensory memories. He doesn't remember what time it was on the clock, but he remembers that it was almost daytime, between light and dark. A person reverting to sensory memories to recall an event is an indication of truth. Sensory memories come from a different part of the brain than cognitive memories. A child, especially, is much more likely to remember something they saw, felt, heard, or tasted than something that they learned. Think back to your elementary school days. Most people can recall what their fifth grade classroom looked like or what your favorite structure on the playground looked like. But try to remember how to do long division with a decimal point. Now that's more of a challenge especially if you never used it later in life. That's the contrast between a cognitive and a sensory memory. Throughout Jesse's short cross-examination, Blackman makes suggestions to fill in the blanks, but Jesse never bites. Blackman suggests that the men in the car pulled up alongside of the woman. Jesse says no. They already had her when he saw them. Blackman asks if Jesse got a look at the victim. He replies honestly, no he didn't. It would have been easy for him to say it was an Asian woman to bolster the validity of his story. But no, Jesse didn't get a good look at her. That's what happened 
and that's what he testified to. Jesse's testimony is pretty impressive for a 16-year-old kid. He never makes assumptions. If he doesn't know or doesn't remember, he doesn't guess or fill in the blanks. He just testified to what he knew. His testimony concluded with Judge Warder asking him if he remembers what the victim was wearing. Warder suggests a dress or shorts. Jesse says no, he's not sure, but he thinks she was wearing pants. When asked what color her clothes were, he said that he's not sure, but he thinks they were, quote, gray or white or something like that. Gray or white or something like that. Kiao was actually wearing light blue pants. Not exactly gray or white, but a far cry closer to the mark than Troy Eldridge's description of a housecoat. When you cut through all the lawyer's posturing, Jesse Swindell's testimony can be summed up in five clear points. It was early in the morning. When he and Judy approached the scene, the four guys were already carrying the woman. They were on a sidewalk. The car was a white Z28 Camaro, and he saw them drive off, make a sharp right turn on September, and hit a tire on the road. That's it. That's all he saw, all he remembered. So for all of us, the question becomes... Do we believe Jesse James Swindell actually witnessed Kiao's abduction? My answer? Yes, I do. I most certainly believe Swindell over Troy Eldridge. When you look closely, Jesse gets important details right. Time of day, location, and most importantly, the tire in the middle of the road. Jesse was a bit off in the color of Kiao's clothes, but he testified that he couldn't really remember what color they were. And that's understandable. Imagine yourself in Jesse's position. He's driving around looking for his cousin. He's not expecting to happen upon an abduction. Everything happened quickly, and he would have been looking at a chaotic scene involving several people in the same place. It's not like he just saw Kiao standing on the street or walking by. He saw her being carried by several other people. There were, as my dad likes to say, asses and elbows everywhere. It's for this same reason that even though I do believe Jesse's testimony, I also think it's possible that he got the number of people wrong. There very well could have been four abductors, but I think that it's also possible that there were two or three. I just find it hard to believe that Jesse was focusing in on counting the numbers of attackers amidst all of that chaos. But the bottom line is whether there were two, three, or four assailants... I do believe that on the morning of July 25th, 1991, Jesse James Wendell did in fact witness the initial attack and abduction of Kiao Gove. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. 
Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Moving forward, let's take a hard look into what Detective Watts might have missed throughout the course of his investigation. Watts took over in 1993. When he picked up the case, he started right where Royster left off, with two strong leads, Kenneth Ray Williams and the White Camaro. We'll get into Watts' investigation into Williams in another episode, but for now, let's see what Watts was up to in the early stages of his investigation. Watts hit the ground running on August 4th of 1993. His first stop was the high school. He interviewed four school employees, Mr. Collins, Mr. Sneed, Denise Green, and Charlotte Mosley. Through Watts' notes, we finally find the answer to the summer school question. Summer school was indeed in session that day. Classes began that morning at 7.50 a.m. All four of the school employees told Watts that they saw Kia walking on the morning of the murder. None of the employees saw anyone else walking. This is important. We now know that at least four people were outside of the school that morning. They all saw Kia walking, but no one saw anyone else in the area. Remember that Troy's story is that he and Jesse jogged right in front of that school around 7.30 in the morning. According to one of the school workers, Charlotte Mosley, she specifically remembered seeing Kia walk by the school at approximately 7.30 a.m. She didn't see anyone else walking or jogging around the school. She says that she didn't realize that anything had happened until she saw the ambulances pull up to the scene right as school was beginning at 7.50. So in order for Troy's story to be true, four different people would have been outside the school that morning, all four saw Kia walking, but none of the four noticed Troy and Jesse jogging by within minutes of Kia. Nor did they see Jesse Eldridge running back across the front of the school wearing a bloody shirt just before the ambulances showed up before school started, while the employees were all still outside. This information does two things for us. Number one, it's further evidence that Troy was lying and Jesse was not jogging around the school that morning. And secondly, it adds more credibility to Jesse Swindell's statement. Anyone walking around the school would have been spotted by the four witnesses. 
but a car driving near the back corner of the campus grounds would have been out of sight from anyone in front of the school. Two days later, Watts did some checking into Swindell's cousin, Ronnie. Remember that at trial, the prosecution made the inference that Jesse's motive for lying could have been to protect his cousin. Watts' notes indicate that he ran a check on Ronnie and found that the car registered to him was a 1978 Oldsmobile four-door, not a white Camaro. About a week later, on August 12th, Watts returned to Spruce High School. He made contact with a Miss Stevens of the Youth Action Center. Stevens directed Watts to speak with a former student to try to track down who might have been driving the white Camaro. The ex-student, who is unnamed in this report, told Watts that a kid named Jesse, a black male, drove a white Z28 with a red stripe on the side saying Z28, and a kid named Chris who was driving a light gray Z28. The student told Watts that he would check in his yearbook to figure out the last names. This is the last we ever hear from the former student or anything about Jesse or Chris. Watts then made contact with Keow's supervisor, Miss Jackson. Jackson told him that another former employee, a Miss Dolores Solis, had told her that someone had told her grandchildren that they know who killed Keow. The next day, Detective Watts returned once again to the school. This time, he spoke with the principal, Mr. Poteet, and here we find the answer to yet another question. How did Poteet identify Keow? Well, the answer is that he got to the scene before the paramedics transported her. In this note from August 13th, Poteet describes blood and bubbles spurting out from Kiao's ribs while the medics were loading her into the ambulance. And then after speaking with Poteet, Watts finally made contact with Jesse James Swindell. Two years had gone by and Jesse was 14 years old at this point. Watts' notes read as follows. I questioned him just briefly and he was unsure about how many or what race the persons were he had observed. He finally said that the group was mostly white males. He did seem certain about the vehicle he had seen, a white Z28. The vehicle had large letters on the bottom of the body stating Z28. He said that his aunt thought the vehicle was gray, but he was sure that it was white. He said that the vehicle took off real fast and spun out and hit some water or a tire laying in the road. He agreed to meet with me at 10 a.m. on the 14th. His older brother, unknown name, slipped and said, quote, Mama Judy had told Jesse that they were going to get the reward money and share it. This is the first instance where we start to see Watts dismissing Jesse's statement. Supposedly, while Jesse was talking to the detective, Jesse's older brother just blurted out that Judy wanted the reward money. As a point of reference here, Mama Judy may very well have wanted to collect the reward money, but that doesn't necessarily mean she's lying. The reason Crime Stoppers exists is because oftentimes people are reluctant to get involved in criminal investigations. But sometimes money is enough incentive to get people talking. It happens all the time. If the only reason that people call Crime Stoppers is to lie in order to get a reward, then police departments would have no use for it. Personally, I think it's likely that Judy Gonzalez did know about the reward, and I think it's also likely that the reward was the trigger for her to finally come forward. Assuming for a minute that that's true, let's examine what this scenario would look like if Judy is lying. Put yourself in the position of the person who hears that there is a reward out there for anyone who provides information that leads to the conviction of the person responsible for a murder. If Judy just made the story up, 
This is what that scenario would look like. She makes up a story about witnessing the abduction. She doesn't tell police that she witnessed the attack at the location that all of the news outlets were reporting the crime occurred. No, that would be too easy. She clementes the scene and determines that the body location must be a secondary crime scene and moves her abduction story to around the corner. Then she tells her made-up story to the police without providing any names or IDing any suspects. No actual information that could lead to the arrest or conviction. Just that she saw some guys dragging some woman into a car. She doesn't even say that it was an Asian woman, just a woman. She says that she thinks she saw a gray car and doesn't give any details. The Z28 detail came from her nephew, Jesse. And speaking of Jesse, he becomes a critical element of her maniacal plan to collect the Crime Stoppers booty. It would be far too easy to make up a story where only you witness the murder. Judy adds a plot twist by involving her 12-year-old nephew. She tells police that Jesse James was with her. That way, she gets to rely on a fifth grader to get the story straight and keep it straight. This turned out to be a terrible idea because Jesse tells police that the car wasn't gray. It was actually white. He must have been a stubborn little shit. All he had to do was repeat Judy's story and hope that the police could make a jump from a car with some guys to finding the real killer, and then he would have crackerjack money for months. But instead, when Royster sat down with both of them in the same room to write their affidavits, Jesse contradicts Judy right to her face, right in front of her. And then he sticks to his story for five years, all the way through the trial. Even after Aunt Mama Judy passes away, and the man on trial had nothing to do with any Camaro, Jesse still holds strong to his story. So let me ask you something. Does that make any sense to you whatsoever? Personally, I think that the idea that Judy and Jesse made up the story to collect reward money is absolutely ridiculous. And considering a narrative where they made up this story in order to protect Ronnie is equally as absurd. At trial, Blackman said that Ronnie was a suspect. And in fact, in a way, that's true. Watts did check into Ronnie. He ran that background check on him, and he checked to see what vehicles he had registered in his name. And he even interviewed him at one point, which we'll get to in a minute. But the problem with Blackman's theory is that Ronnie didn't become a suspect until Watts took over in 1993. He was never on Royster's radar back in 1991 when Jesse and Judy wrote their affidavits. In fact, the only reason that Ronnie ever became a suspect was because Jesse and Judy reached out to the police and said that he was missing in the area that morning. So again, looking at a scenario where Judy is making up this story to protect Ronnie, police haven't contacted Ronnie. He is in no way a suspect, so you call the police and make up a story about driving around that morning in the neighborhood where the murder occurred looking for him. Once again, it makes zero sense. I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but when you get beyond the big picture and look at the details, I don't see any scenario where Judy or Jesse James Wendell are lying. There's just no reason or motive for them to make up the story. In my opinion, the only scenario that makes sense is that they did in fact witness Kiao's attack. Judy was hesitant to get involved with the police because of Ronnie's previous run-ins with the law. And after four months go by, after either realizing that the killer was never caught or because of the reward money, Judy finally decided that she needed to share what she saw with the police. Now let's move back to Watts' investigation. We left off with Watts talking to Jesse on the 13th of August. The next note we find is dated on the next day and reads as follows. 
attempted to contact Jesse James Wendell at his residence. Jesse was still at the hospital with his sister. I did speak to his two brothers, and they both told me that Ronnie Blackwell had told them that he knew one of the persons who killed the complainant. They went on to say that Ronnie Blackwell has been arrested this morning by the Garland police for auto theft. I checked with Garland, and this information proved to be correct. Then later that day, contacted Blackwell at Garland PD. He gave me the name of Shane or Sean Quayle, a white male, 18 years old approximately. He said that three days after the complainant had been killed, a person named James, a white male, 19 years old, told him that Quayle and him, James, had made some money and they were going to buy some dope. They were at the apartments next to Spruce when they had the conversation. Blackwell said that he figured that they had killed the complainant because Quayle was driving a white Z28 with blue writing on the bottom of the vehicle, just as his cousin Jesse had described to him. Blackwell said that after the complainant was killed, Quayle parked the Z28 in the parking lot of a little store across from the apartment for about a month. Blackwell gave me the following names of persons who run with Quayle. Number one is Chris Parks. He's half black, half white, looks like a Mexican, age 19. The second is Chad Nelms, a white male, 19 years old. Blackwell also said that another person named Sammy, a white male, 19, 6 foot tall, 165 pounds, with long brown hair, runs with quail. Here we have a few more leads on the white Camaro. Jesse James was never specific about the color of the Z28 decal in any of his written statements or testimony. No one ever asked him what color it was. But here, according to Ronnie, Jesse told him that the Z28 decal was blue. If that's correct, then we can narrow our search for the suspect vehicle down even further. Not only do we possibly know the color of the decal, but based on the research that I've been doing, it appears that Chevy only offered a package that included a white Z28 with a blue decal on the side for one year, 1980. Now, I could be wrong about this, and if you have some information to the contrary, please share it with me. But as of right now, it looks like we are looking for someone who drove a 1980 white Chevy Z28 Camaro with Z28 on the side in large blue letters. And according to Ronnie, he knows who drove that car. This is probably the most frustrating part of this case to date. Ronnie told Watts that a Shane or Sean Quayle owned the car in question and that he had parked the car in the parking lot across from the apartments for weeks after the murder. Now, for those of you who live nearby and have been driving around the area to check out the crime scene, the store that Ronnie is talking about here no longer exists. Directly across the street to the south of the apartment complex now stands an empty lot. But in 1991, there was a strip mall in that lot. That's where Ronnie is claiming that the car was parked after the murder. But that's not the frustrating part. What's frustrating is, as far as I can tell, there isn't a Shane or Sean Quayle anywhere in the state of Texas. Never has been. He doesn't exist. This could mean a few things. Watts could have gotten the name wrong. I've also considered the fact that Ronnie may have actually said Shaw Quayle rather than Shane Quayle or Sean Quayle. Or it's possible that Quayle never put his name on any government document, thus rendering himself basically invisible to any background checks. Or Ronnie could have made the name up. If any of you listening lived in the Pleasant Grove area in the early 90s or went to school at Spruce High School, please get in touch with me if you remember anyone by the name of Shane or Sean Quayle, or anyone whose name sounds similar for that matter. 
And aside from that, please get in touch if you know anyone who was driving a white Camaro around that area in the early 90s. You might just hold the key that leads us to Kiao's real killer. Ronnie did give Watts a couple of names that may lead us to Quail. According to Ronnie, Chris Parks and Chad Nelms ran with Quail. Both would be somewhere around 42 years old today. If you happen to know any of these people personally, please send me an email. Do not, I repeat, do not contact anyone involved in this case yourself, unless it is someone that you have a personal relationship with. On August 17th, Watts makes his final note about the white Camaro. On that day, he returned to talk to Jesse James and Ronnie together. Watts had Jesse indicate to him on a map where he observed the attack. Jesse pointed to the same place that he had said from the beginning, on Grady Lane between Apache and September. Watts added to the note, quote, which isn't near the location where the body was found. His note goes on to say that Jesse couldn't remember what time he saw the attack, but Ronnie stated that Jesse and Judy picked him up at his friend's house at midnight. And this was good enough for Watts. The next paragraph in his note reads as follows, quote, By what location Jesse said that he observed the Z-28, and the time Ronnie said that he was located by his mother, the information about the Z-28 is not connected to this offense. And that was it. The end of the road. For two weeks, Watts was like a dog on a bone with the Z-28. At this point, he had five different names that could be connected with the car. He had Ronnie's statement about the car being parked across the street, and both Jesse and Judy swearing they witnessed the attack without any apparent motive to lie. And he just drops it. There is no indication that he ever followed up on any of the leads that he collected over the two-week period. Look at the comparison here. Troy Eldridge swears to Watts for four months that Jesse has nothing to do with the murder before Watts finally breaks him. He refuses to take no for an answer, and even when Troy wrote his first affidavit, Watts continued to press him until he wrote a, quote, better statement eight months later. Watts is a guy that always gets his man. He gets the reluctant witnesses to talk. In Jesse Eldridge's case, the only lead Watts had was a mother saying that she knows in her heart that her son killed that woman, and a brother who denied any knowledge of the crime. But that was good enough for Watts to dig his heels in and not stop for over a year until he got his arrest. Then we compare that to the white Camaro. Two eyewitnesses that had stuck with their story for years. Multiple leads confirming their story and a list of names to track down. But in that case, all it took was for one uninvolved witness to say from what he remembers he got picked up a few hours earlier than Jesse James remembered, two and a half years after the fact, and poof, case closed. So what's the difference between these two scenarios? Well, one of them required real investigative police work, and the other... The other only required one reluctant witness without a backbone.
Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Michael Bussing. Our sound engineer is Shane Yoder. All music for this episode was written and scored by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Sarah Hoyt, and Desiree Dunn. And thank you to Chris Brinkley of SylviaConsultants.com for creating and managing our website. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Send us new cases to cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Between now and Wednesday, call in and leave us a voicemail about this episode at 269-224-2833. You can keep in touch by liking the Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.